my name is Nick. If I haven't met you, uh, I am the lead pastor here. Happy to bring you God's word this morning. But we're going to dive right in here this morning. Um, I think everything was covered well in the announcements. Thank you, Paul. Um, we are excited about Easter and Good Friday and um, again, would encourage you to invite family, friends, things like that. Um, we're we're excited. I, I can't believe how quickly it comes up. Folks, I was just preparing for Easter's message last year, so it's wild um, how quick a year goes, especially when you have three little kids at home. Um, but we're going to be in Luke <clears throat> Luke nine this morning. This is kind of the second part, looking at this text, uh, Luke nine verses thirty seven to fifty six. Um, if you need a Bible, go ahead, raise your hand, and uh, we'll get one to you. If you don't own one, that's our gift to you. If you know someone who you want to give it away to, gosh, the more we can give away God's Word, um, the happier we are. So feel free to take that. But we're in Luke chapter 9, verses 37 to uh, 56. I'll read it, pray. And then uh, we'll dive in, and I'll, I'll try not to perish up here. <clears throat> okay. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I, I beg you to look at my son, for he's my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out, It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back. To his father. All were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Now an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. These guys are amazing. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name, receives me. Whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. 
<clears throat> Let's pray, guys. God, we're here this morning gathered yet again around the cross of our Lord. And we're praying, as you've always done, that you would do it again here for us today. That you would take sorrow and you would turn it to joy. That you would take our our condemnation and you would turn it for justification. You would take our pain and you would turn it towards delight. You would take our dark hour and make it bright. You would take us sinners and make us saints. That we owe everything to the cross of Jesus Christ. And I know there's stuff in this text that's going to expose us. I pray it does. I pray you shine this text like a spotlight into the depths of our hearts. I pray that our pride and our our self-centered, self-worship, self-exalting use of religion and other things. God, I pray that you would unveil, expose us so that you can heal us. God, we want to be a church that's truly centered on the cross, not just in our words, but in our hearts and in our deeds, in our culture. I want people to walk in here and know, man, that something feels different there. Because we've been crushed by the crushing of our Savior. We've been broken by His brokenness for us. So there's a love and there's a peace and there's a joy, there's a humility here that can't be conjured by mere volition of men. God, would you do all of this and more, I pray, during our time together here this morning. It's in your name, for your name, that I ask these things. Amen. Um, So, this is now uh, the second week, like I said, looking into this text. Um, last week I began, you might remember, by saying, gosh, when we first come to Christ, a lot of times what we have is this mistaken notion that all sin, all struggle with sin, all all kind of that old life, it'll just be gone. And we'll just be walking in newness of life. We'll be walking constantly in righteousness. The stuff we used to deal with, we will deal with no longer. But what we find, unfortunately, or fortunately, because God ordained it, is that our sin seems to persist a bit. Um, The image I gave us last time is that On our way to glory, the pathway, if you will, to glory, to conformity, full conformity into the image of Christ, 
It's not so much like an elevator, as in you kind of get in and you go straight up. But it's more like a winding staircase that kind of goes meanders here and there. And sometimes you think you might even be going backwards rather than forwards. But nonetheless, in the end, you're ascending towards the final destination. Grace (laughs) prevails, though sin persists. Grace will ultimately prevail. And we will grow in godliness and we will look more like our Savior. And he will uproot that sin, little by little, one degree of glory to the next. We will be conformed to his image. Now, I think, largely, that is the point we should draw from the shape that our narrative takes. Uh, as we kind of look at Luke's gospel, follow with the way that Luke is recording these things here. I think that's one of the points we're supposed to draw. Because if you recall in the verses immediately before our text, verses 28 through 36, um, Peter, James, John, they were just with Jesus up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Unspeakable glory they were witnessing. And we would be prone to think, I imagine, that um, it's only up from here. But instead, what we see is the narrative proceeds. And as they come down from the mountain, gosh, uh, this unspeakable glory of Jesus kind of gives way to almost laughable idiocy of the disciples. I say almost laughable because it's actually not so funny when we come to realize it's not just something that's in them, it's actually something that's in us as well. This sin that persists, this pride, this way we can twist even the things of Jesus to serve ourselves, it's evident throughout the text that follows. In spite of all that they have seen, all that they have heard of Jesus up to this point, they still don't get it. Now, there was something I just wanted to speak quickly into the margin, if I could, even in the introduction. Um, And it's just a quick little implication for parents. Uh, I don't know how many of you are parents out there. I'm a parent of three little ones, so I'm thinking about this sort of thing all the time. And I, 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 as I kind of looked at the way that this narrative proceeds... I was actually strangely encouraged with regard to my parenting. Here's, here's one of the things I know. Um, a lot of times, uh, well, parenting is hard, but a lot of times one of the things we think is that our parenting strategies, our, you know, the way we approach our kids, it's kind of decisive uh, on their, in terms of determining their behavior. In other words, for good or for bad, how I am and the strategies and the training I use as a parent will affect my kids in a decisive way. If I'm a good parent with good strategies, good training, they'll be good. And you'll see it when we're walking, you know, down the street or we're walking through the grocery store. My kids are going to be doing it. But if I'm a bad parent, bad training, not involved in their life, not doing the right thing, then they're going to be chaotic. It's going to be crazy. And you'll be able to know. And I think this sort of mentality that parents are prone to is kind of reinforced by people around us a lot of times, right? Like, so let's be honest. Uh, have you ever been in that, in that checkout line of the grocery store where you have the, um, the kid who's throwing the tantrum because he wants the Skittles or he wants the Kit Kat, whatever it is, throwing the tantrum. Now you're watching this little kid do this. Now, now be honest. What's your response? Is it Oh, yeah, look at that little sinner. No, no, I'm, I'm, I actually said that would be a good response. I'm serious. Oh, oh, oh. 
Look at that little sinner. Sin persists in us, man. It's in our nature, just like me. I have a more sophisticated way of throwing a tantrum, but I still do the same sort of thing. I'm sure that mom is on it day and night trying hard. But gosh, sin is a tough weed to root out, isn't it? Is that how you respond? Or, be honest, you kind of look at the kid, look at the mom, size her up and down a little bit. Well, somebody's not doing her job. (laughs) Serious. Somebody's not doing her job. You're raising a spoiled little brat over here. And parents these days, back in my day, we would never stand for this, right? That's the sort of thing. You get, you get where I'm going? But here's what I see in this text. It's wonderful. Now, I'm not saying that our parenting does not have a significant influence on our kids' hearts, their behavior. Absolutely it does. I'm saying there's just more to the story. So let me tell you something. It doesn't get, you, you don't get a better parent, so to speak, a better trainer, better teacher than Jesus. And yet I watch his disciples and I go, these guys are idiots. <laughs> they don't get it. They continue to misrepresent his heart, misrepresent what he stands for, but he stays with them and he loves them. Now, does that say that he's failing? That his strategies are wrong? No, it just says something about the sin that's in us. It's nasty. It's in our kids. It's in you and I. So this is mommy, daddy. It just, this is just for free. This is free. I mean, you can, I'll take donations if you want. My pocket's open. But this, is, this is just free right here. Mommy, daddy, receive grace. Okay, receive grace. Um, even Jesus had unruly kids. If your kids, you feel like, man, they're not, they're not falling in line. <laughs> God is with you. God is with you. Uh, stay the fight, and uh, your labor is not in vain. I said last time that this text puts forward five vignettes, if you notice. They're just all strung together. Five quick little stories, little vignettes. And each vignette gives us a different uh, perspective on the sin that persists in us. On the stuff that kind of goes wrong inside of our hearts. Each one gives us a different perspective. Now, last week we looked at the first three. I'm going to summarize them real quick for you here. And then we're going to move into the last two. Uh, We saw in verses 37 to the first part of verse 43. That there is still a tendency towards uh, independence. Is what I said vignette number one kind of stood for. There's this tendency towards independence. Now, uh, in that text, you didn't exactly see it, but when you brought in Mark's account, here's what you realize. The disciples come up and say, why could we not cast out the demon? Why couldn't we do this? And Jesus says, well, this kind can only come out with prayer, and most manuscripts include in fasting. So the implication is that you guys weren't doing either of these things. You were relying on your own strength, your own experience, your own wisdom. Like we've walked with Jesus long enough. I think we know how to handle this. Couldn't do it. Independence persists in us. Vignette number two, verses 43, the latter part, to verse 45, uh, brought out this idea that I said um, we could identify by the word deafness. Where Jesus uh, predicts again, he, he, he tells them again, I'm going to go, I'm going to die. I'm going to lay down my life. 
And we read uh, in the last part of verse 45 there that they were afraid to ask him about this saying. In other words, they kind of plug their ears. They know that they could ask, what do you mean by that? Matthew's account says they were distressed by the saying. They got that it was something not good and they didn't want to hear it. No more about that. It's kind of a selective deafness that we can be prone to. Where we like this verse, we don't like that verse. We like this truth, we don't like that truth. Let's push that one aside and hone in on these. Then as we move to verses 46 to 48, and the third vignette, uh, I said it kind of gets uglier from here on out. This is where it starts to get even more flagrant. Because Jesus, again, just predicted his self-sacrificial death, and where do they go from there but to argue about who's the greatest? Among them. It's this horrible irony. But it captures what I mentioned last time. I would identify by the word rivalry. The rivalry, the competition that can exist even within a local church, even within your own little group of believers gathered around the cross. The very symbol of self-sacrificial love. We can actually use the cross, use the church as a platform for ourselves. For our own glory. It's this horrible thing that still persists in us. Even as we're brought out of the world and into the church, we kind of bring the world with us. We just hide it a little better. Who's the greatest? Rivalry. Now, we're ready to dive into the last two here. Vignette number four. You see it there in verses 49 and 50. Um, I would identify what we see here of the sins that still persists in us by the word um, tribalism. Tribalism. Now, I'm seeing that there really is kind of a progression through these last few vignettes, and here's what I mean. Um, Vignette number three dealt with rivalry within your own tribe, so to speak, within your own church, where we ought to be um, like Paul would say in 1 Corinthians, where we ought to be weeping with you know, those who weep. When one suffers, we all suffer. Uh, and then when one member is honored, we are, we're, we are all celebrating with them. Instead, what happens is, is we kind of turn on one another. When you're honored, I kind of wonder, why not me? And when you suffer, I kind of, though I'll smile and say, oh, I'll pray for you. I kind of go, ah, they had it coming. So there can be this rivalry within the church itself, within your own tribe, so to speak. Person sitting next to you in the pew, tragically, can be your opponent, threat to your own glory. But then now what we see in this fourth vignette is that it kind of broadens out a bit. That same heart, that same concept is now just uh, played out um, on a different stage. Now it's not just me versus you within our church, but now it's my tribe versus those tribes out there. Now it's my church versus those churches, our denomination versus those denominations, our theological camp versus those theological camps, and the backbiting and, and the dividing and the, the fighting that can happen. Even though you're all a part of the people of God. Tribalism. Now, look at verse 49 with me again. John answered, 
Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. Hopefully you're already starting to see what I'm talking about. There's someone out there, someone in another group, someone not a part of the twelve. He's casting out demons in Jesus' name. But the disciples here, in particular, John, looks and he says, listen, if he's not with us, he can't be doing that. If he's not a part of the twelve, the inner circle, he can't be doing that. Who does he think he is? We're the leaders around here. Jesus is not impressed by John's logic. Jesus knows what's in the heart of man. I want you to think about it with me. This is actually quite interesting. Um, What is it that the apostles were unable to do back up in verses 37 to 43? What is it? Cast out a demon. Is that right? And what is it? That this guy out here is able to do in Jesus' name. Cast out a demon. Now, you can't tell me, though I know you guys are all much more saintly than I am, (laughs) that that doesn't get at your pride a little bit. Well, how come? He's all successful. What about me? I couldn't do that. He can do that. I'm going to put a stop to that right now. We'll have none of it. Before you know it, people won't be looking to the 12, Jesus, your inner circle. They'll be looking out there. We can't have that. Let me go stop. Now, I'd be lying to you if I were to say I can't relate to John here. This is just full disclosure. I don't know if you thought that pastors kind of walk a different path. You guys are on the ascending, spiraling staircase, but I'm in the elevator. No, it's not how that works. I look at this and I go, gosh, I am the man. I am the man. Scrolling through Facebook, hearing from friends, whatever it is, seeing the other pastors doing their perhaps humble brags about how many they baptized or the new building they just bought or the book that's now on top of the list or... You know, here's what I got from my devotions in the Greek New Testament this morning. <laughs> or, you know, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm serious. I'm actually serious. Some guys I have to stop following because I, I, I struggle. So I'm like, but then some of it where it's like, yeah, you just don't want to see another church do well or something. So, on my good days, I can celebrate. My good days... Kingdom of, of God is the kingdom of God. And whether you're a part of this church or you're part of the church down the street, if the kingdom of God is advancing, man, God is to be praised. It brings joy. That's my good days. Bad days? What rises up is, well, they got a family pastor. They got a youth group that does all that. Look at it. They're going to do an Easter egg drop with 300 eggs coming in. How can I compete with that? Not celebration, but competition. Tribalism. Not concerned for the kingdom of God. But if you've been going through Paul Tripp's marriage stuff, concerned for the kingdom of self. Me. Taking the church and using it to exalt. I mean, that's what's happening here with John. Now, as I was thinking on these things, 
repenting of these things afresh. I recalled something I've read by a guy named Andrew Wilson. Um, he's a pastor connected with uh, Nine Marks Ministries and things like that. And, and uh, this isn't uh, unique to me. He writes this. What if you spent years faithfully and earnestly praying for revival to come to your community? And then one day, seemingly out of the blue, God dramatically answered your prayers. All across your city, every day, people begin crowding into the church to hear the gospel from God's word. On the streets, in their workplaces, in classrooms, and homes, all over town, previously timid church members are faithfully declaring the gospel, and fruit is coming fast. Lives are transformed, marriages are saved, and most of all, one after another, God's enemies are laying down the weapons of their rebellion and are taking refuge in His glorious and merciful Son. What if all this happened in your own town, right in front of your eyes, in that other guy's church, just a few blocks down the street from yours? I suspect we all know what we ought to say in response. But the words of praise and joy are likely to get caught in the back of our throats. Title of his article here was Pray for Revival in the Other Guy's Church. Isn't that awesome? I know what I should say. But on your bad days, why not me? As if it matters. As if it matters at all. And of course, this isn't just a pastor's dilemma. Christians, sadly, are notorious for backbiting, dividing, defining themselves over against the others. Have you ever seen, I mean, I took a church history class. Have you ever seen the denominational kind of tree? Let me tell you something. It is more like an ever-expanding weed that in my mind probably brings more shame to Christ's name than glory. Because what often happens, what often happens is, is we, 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 def- we, we don't just divide nicely. As we divide, we demonize. Well, we're the faithful remnant traced all the way back to Acts 2, baby. It's only us now. And everyone's saying that. They're the heretics because they believe this and that about this text. They're there. They believe this and that about this text. And it just goes on and on and on. Tribalism to the shame of Jesus' name. Now, this is not to say, and hopefully you know by now, I've tried to labor. How do you draw lines on theology and things? And, and yet uh, you hold convictions and yet in a way that's merciful because this is not to say that distinctions in theology or philosophy or practice don't matter. They do. And denominations, fine. But the problem is, what it is to say is that somewhere along the way we often lose sight of the greater thing that unites us, namely Jesus and the cross. That's the danger in it. That's what we can lose so often. Now, this is where Jesus is going to take his disciples and us next. Um, Jesus, seeing this sort of thing in John, seeing this sort of thing in us, reorients us with his words. He says this, do not stop him. 
for the one who is not against you is for you. In essence, he's saying, man, John, you're on the same team. He's casting out demons in my name. Why are you going to pin yourself against your teammate? It's like playing defense on your own offense. It doesn't make any sense. But I want to be the one to score. (laughs) It's that foolish. Later, Jesus will say something seemingly opposite to this statement here, actually. And I want to look at it because when we look at it closely, uh, something profound comes to light. Um, In Luke 11.23, Jesus says this. He says, whoever is not with me is against me. Now, see it with me here again. So to John, he says, the one who is not against you is for you. Luke eleven twenty three. he says, whoever is not with me is against me. Now, that, to, to me, at least, first glance, seems like he's saying the same thing John said. Because this guy is not with us, he must be against us. I'm going to stop him. But Jesus rebukes him. Says, that ain't right. And it seems like he goes on later and says the exact same thing. What's the difference? How do we account for that? How does that make any sense? Well, I realize this is a point in the sermon where I'm like, I'm probably going to lose people here. But hang with me. The key difference is in the pronouns. Hang with me. I'll show you what I mean. This is so huge for our church. The difference, the key, is in the pronouns. For John, the decisive factor is whether the person is with who? Us. The twelve. Us. Our little circle. The person isn't with us, therefore he must be against us. And we need to be against him. But for Jesus, the decisive factor is not whether the person is with the twelve or us, so to speak, but rather whether he is with me. If he's not with me, well then he's against me. In other words, a person can be outside of our little tribe and still be with Jesus and therefore on our team. We often like to blend. We like to blend the two pronouns. That's what John is doing. We like to blend it. If that person is not with us, then he must also not be with Jesus. But Jesus moves us in precisely the opposite direction. Mercy Hill, Acts 29, Reformed Theological Camp, however you want to identify us, by our tribe, whatever it may be, doesn't compose the sum total of the people of God. The kingdom of God is so much bigger than what we have going here. However much that hurts our little egos, or we want to be a part of something where it's really happening. The most mature stance we can have is that, gosh, we're just one little part of a much bigger move of God, kingdom of God, to celebrate. When it, when, it, when it goes off for the Pentecostals, or it goes off for the Arminians, or it goes off for the church down the street, whatever it is. 
Whatever it is. I'm just throwing out divisions because this is what people can do. This is what seminary can be like. I mean, our team, you ain't with us, you ain't with him. It's not right. It's not right. Now, why do we do this? And this is a critical question I wanted to ask at this point. Why do we do this? Why is this in us? Why do we tend to um, backbite and divide and, and this sort of thing and um, result in kind of tribalism and pointing the finger and, you know, uh, circle the wagons? Um, I think this sort of thing is a result of what we might call an identity crisis. I think that this sort of tribalism results when we seek to define ourselves over and against others rather than defining ourselves in Christ. It's an identity crisis. So let me flesh this out. Paul says in Colossians 3.3 that um, I have died and my life is hidden with Christ in God. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. In other words, Jesus is your identity. Jesus is the one that you are defined in. You are accepted in him. You are justified in him. You are successful in Him, you are loved, you are valued, you are cherished by the Father in Him. You will be received into glory because you are in Him. Your life is hidden in Christ. He is your identity. It's not what I do over and against you that ultimately defines me, but rather what He has done for me. And if you get that, if you live there, if you plant your roots down deep into that reality, you won't need to look at everyone else with a critical eye trying to push yourself up. You'll be free. You'll be free to celebrate other tribes' wins. You'll be free to celebrate the advance of the kingdom of God wherever it may be found I'm not defined by what I can accomplish in comparison to you I'm defined by what he's accomplished for me now you get how if you if you if you kind of we're prone to this we drift from that you get how if you drift from that if you kind of become unmoored from your identity in Christ how you move towards tribalism it's this, it's this sort of, not freedom anymore, it would be a sort of slavery. A sort of slavery and a, a, a fundamental insecurity. Because I'm not uh, uh, identifying myself in Christ and His finished work, I still have a lot to prove. i got to make sure at the end of the day I feel good about myself, that I am justified. I'm trying to justify myself every day. And the way I do that is by looking at what everyone else is accomplishing and seeing if I can one-up them. Therefore, what ends up happening is I can't celebrate your wins. In fact, I'm threatened by them because they make me feel less about myself. 
And I, 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 I can't uh, weep with you when, 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 when you're struggling. Instead, I kind of secretly delight in it because it gives me a chance to get the upper hand. I'm not settled in Christ. My life hid with Christ, knowing that, I, that you're accepted, you're loved. You've got nothing to prove. Who cares if it happens in your church or with your tribe or whatever it is? You're in Him. You're on the winning team. Rejoice. You have that, you're free. You don't, you're a slave. Fundamentally insecure. And you need other people to fail. Otherwise, you won't feel good about yourself in the evening before bed. And so you will, you will talk bad about the other tribes. You will point the finger. You won't be able to see them properly or with a compassionate heart because you kind of need them as a foil against which you can see yourself as better. It's nasty. It's a sin that persists in us and it can get in the church. It's an identity crisis and we need Christ back at the center. This is precisely what Paul is dealing with in 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 31 with the Corinthian church. This exact sort of thing. And, he, and, and I want you to see what he does with it because it's exactly what I'm saying here. He tries to recenter them on Jesus, on the cross. But let me just read you a little bit from this. Um, this is verses 10 through 13. He writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? You see how he's trying to get people back to the fundamental identity in Jesus. They're wanting to go tribal here. Did you notice that? They're wanting to divide by who baptized them, who discipled them, who taught them, who, who leads their little clan. And then he says they're quarreling with one another because of that. But he goes, man, listen. You are missing the fact that what unites you is greater than what divides you. Namely, Jesus and the cross. You're on the same team if you're with Him, even if they're not with you. They're trying to say, hey, we're wiser, we're stronger, we're more significant than the others. But Paul uproots that identity and tries to fix the crisis here, reroots them in Jesus. Listen to this. This is now verses 27 to 31. God chose what is foolish. God chose what is weak. In other words, stop using the church as a platform for yourself. Find your identity in him. God chose what is low and despised so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us. So he is our wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. 
You're boasting in the flesh. Your wisdom, your power, your significance, your tribal leader. He's saying, no. You're in Christ. He's your wisdom. He's your strength. He's your power. And you're not the only one in him. They are too. On the same team. When you boast in the Lord, that boasting in the Lord destroys the root. It attacks the root of tribalism. It attacks it. It can't coexist in that environment when you're just saying, man, I was weak, I was foolish, I was nothing, and you saved me. So whether you're in this church or that one, whether you're in this denomination or that one, whether you wear a tie to the service or you wear jeans or Maybe you do some hipster hybrid of both. Whether you sing contemporary songs or you have a pipe organ. Listen, if you're with Jesus, you're on the same team. Even if they're not with you. So let me ask you then. Is your identity anchored in Jesus, would you say? Are you defining yourself in him, what he has said about you, what he has accomplished for you? Or is it kind of unmoored from that? Do other people's successes threaten you? Do other people's failures secretly please you? Jesus is walking with us in this journey to help us re-anchor ourselves in him. He knows the sin that still persists. His grace will prevail. Vignette number five, obviously I'm going to go much quicker. This is verses 51 to 55 now. Um, Now, if I were to, uh, let me show you again the progression that I'm seeing. Um, Remember in vignette number three, it was rivalry kind of within your own tribe. Now we just saw in vignette number four, tribalism. So it's now my tribe versus the other tribes out there. But now what we see in this fifth and final vignette is um, what I would call the animosity that can exist between the church and the world. Not on the same team anymore, so to speak. Not a part of God's people, but the church and the world. And the animosity that we can be prone to. Um, even still. It's the same basic issue, again, just brought into a different context with uh, the heat turned up a bit, uh, quite literally, as we'll see. Um, in the text here, we're talking about, if you notice there in verse 52, the Samaritans. We're talking about the Samaritans um, and how the Jews would have seen the Samaritans. They were half-breeds, kind of half-Jew, half-Gentile, therefore wholly unclean. There's this whole history of conflict. I can't go into it now, but all you need to know is what came from it is both sides equally despised the other. So this is why uh, when the Samaritans see that Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem, did you see that there in verse 51? We'll probably come back to that uh, when, when we deal with the text that follows um, after Easter. 
But he's heading towards Jerusalem. Uh, the Samaritan's town that they're uh, stopping in sees that they're going to Jerusalem, the land of the Jews, and they say, no, thank you. Find another town to rest your head in. I'm not going to let you stay here. So James and John, seeing this, want to follow in suit. And they kind of want to up the ante a little bit, right? You see it there in verse 54. Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? <laughs> now, no doubt, here's, here's the irony. No doubt, they thought this was an honorable request. They thought, Jesus, my, my boys! You won't let them, you know, uh, dis, you know, dis, disrespect me. Thank you, James and John. Sit on my right and my left. They thought this was an honorable thing to, to ask. Should we call fire on them right now? But what they're requesting is so terribly out of touch with what the Savior has truly come to do. He just told him, I've come to die. He told him a few verses before that, I've come to die. He'll continue to tell them again and again. John 12, 47. I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Will he come again to judge the living and the dead? Yes, he will. But he came at first to be judged himself for sinners in place of sinners. So that the gospel, the free offer of the gospel could go to the ends of the earth and then the end will come. So James and John run ahead of the Savior here. And that's why we read next verse 55. He turned and rebuked them. Rebuked who? Not the Samaritans for rejecting them stay. That's what James and John thought would happen. Turns and rebukes who? His own disciples. As if to say, James and John, you don't get it. The fire that you would call down on this Samaritan village, I am soon going to call down upon myself in Jerusalem on the cross. That's why my face is set there. The hour's coming. So perhaps we have found ourselves in the same sort of spirit as James and John when in discussion with unbelievers. Perhaps uh, in our zeal for defending the truth. And the honor of Jesus. We actually forfeit love. And the very character and heart of Jesus. How do you feel about the unbelieving? Um, are they opponents? That quite honestly sometimes you wish you could call fire down upon. And do away with them. 
one-up them in the, in the next argument. You should see the way that my grandma watches the evening news. <laughs> Sitting in her chair, just yelling like these people are the devil himself, the political, you know, the, the, the news anchors, or the politicians that come on, the liberals, whatever it is, just yelling. And, and it's like, um, I swear if she had the power, she would call down the fire, right? <laughs> They're the reason everything's going wrong. But we can kind of feel that way. And look down our noses at people that don't have Christian values, don't believe in the gospel, but are doing all these other things that are contrary. And instead of having their, their opponents, instead of uh, people that we, we see as broken and lost, just like we were and still are in many ways, and we want to lay down our lives, not call fire down on them, but throw ourselves in the fire for them if it means they would see our Savior. Is that how you approach it? At this point, I'm going to end here. Um, We have to be willing to say how little we know of ourselves and our own hearts. I think that's one of the significant takeaways from this, this text. These disciples, they can't see it. We, reading it, we see it. You might even laugh at how stupid they are. But what it actually is at the end of the day is a warning for us that says, listen, you could be following with Jesus, seeing amazing things he's doing, hearing his gospel and the cross and all of these things, and still this stuff is in you and you don't even know it. In fact, I'd go so far as to say, I guarantee it's in us and we don't even see all of it. But here's the wonderful thing that that comes out from... Um, from this narrative, is does Jesus end with his disciples here? No, he's about to t- continue teaching for like a whole other year. A whole other year, he's going to die for them. He's going to keep walking with them by the Spirit, training and teaching. Them. He's not done with us. So the one who does actually see how deep it goes is patient, and though sin persists in us, his grace will prevail for us in. The end. Um, it's actually quite amazing. James and John, right, are the are the two disciples featured here, um, perhaps to their shame, um, in this text. And if we follow the story of James and John, I just want to show you a couple of ways that grace prevailed in their life, and, and it will in ours as well. James. I mean, think about this. The guy who uh, wanted to call down fire on the enemies of Jesus would himself give his life for the spread of the gospel. Letting himself be thrown into the fire just like his Savior was. Acts 12.2 Herod the king killed James the brother of John with the sword. Because he was with Jesus. And he was spreading the way around the city. He got it. Grace prevailed. Not judgment, but mercy. Or John, the guy who wanted to stop the ministry of anyone who was not in his little clique, his little inner circle. He actually writes in the epistle you perhaps never read, his third epistle. 
actually writes out against this very thing that he would have condoned back in the beginning. There were these missionaries, these Christian worker missionaries traveling around to different churches from outside of their local church and from other places, and they were coming in. And um, some in the church were welcoming and supporting these brothers, knowing that, man, the kingdom is much bigger than us. And we're so stoked for what you're doing. But then there's another guy by the name of Diotrephes. He was not doing this sort of thing. He was excluding. He was suspicious. He was. John's going to write against this man who's doing the very thing he once would have condoned. John says this in verses 9 and 10. Diotrephes likes to put himself first. He refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who wants to who want to and puts them out of the church. He's all about his inner circle. And if you don't come from him, he don't want anything to do with it because he's got to be first and it's his crew first. And he says, verse 11, that stuff is evil. Grace prevails because Jesus walks with us uproots this sort of thing out of us, teaches us more and more about himself. So let me tell you something, maybe, and my prayer has been, as we've gone through these five vignettes, you see stuff in you. God's been shining light in your own heart. And my encouragement would be, don't hide. Don't be surprised. Part of it, the reason why it's in here is so that we're not surprised. But we recognize it's there. And we, we just own it. We name it, we confess it, and we bring it to the one who we know is committed to help and able to do so. That though sin persists in us, his grace will prevail in the end. Let's pray. <coughs> God, thank you. That though you see us, you love us. For some of us, that statement is offensive. We think, of course, anyone who sees me would love me. (laughs) But God, you see us as we truly are, and there is a lot of stuff in the depths of this heart that is grotesque, that is nasty, that is offensive to you, and yet still, you love. Thank you that you're committed to training, to changing, to conforming unruly kids to your image. Thank you that you're not ashamed to be associated with us, God. Thank you that your grace prevails. It's in your name we ask these things. Amen.